Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Story Smack. This is Story Smack, a podcast about stories and storytellers in the world of pop culture. My name is A. Kovacs, audiobook narrator and founding partner at Empty Set Entertainment. And my name is Scott Sigler, and I have just one question. Snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? <laughs> Today, we're talking about our cool evening last night. We went to see Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's right. Raiders of the That's Lost right. Ark, uh, at something called Rooftop Cinema here in San Diego. We were outside on the roof of the Manchester Hyatt downtown. It was pretty cool. Plus, we're seeing it. Now, this this is what struck me while we were watching the film. And this has never struck me before, because time is a thing. You had time happen. Time is an actual thing. We're seeing this movie about 40 years after it came out. It's actually been out for 37 and a half years or so. Uh, and... What's fascinating about that to me is we're watching this movie that's almost 40 years old, and when it came out, it was 40 years older than the movies it was emulating. The, um, the two-fisted, gritty serial action. Swashbuckling. The swash of the stuff Spielberg grew up watching and yeah, wanted sure. to emulate. So it's this, it's this super cool spot, and I'm, I know I, I repeat myself a lot, but it's like 40 years ago, this movie came out, and when that movie came out, it was about movies that were out 40 years before mm -hmm. it came out. And it was super cool to look at it from that perspective. Yeah. It was, because uh, it was out in, 19, in 1981. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, for those of you who, in case you've been in an alternate reality <laughs> and have yeah. never heard, although we do have our neighbor next door who's literally never seen a Raiders movie. Um, oh. Here's, yeah, right. We're going to have to get Chrissy on that. Here's some details. Directed by Steven Spielberg, music composed by John Williams, who we have featured on a previous story smack. Yes, big fan. Uh, John Vizcara, our, our uh, big John Vizcara is a real big John Williams yeah. fan. So that was sort of fun that we happened to do that. Yes. And screenplay by Lawrence Kasdan, who's a pimp. And starring, of course, Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones. And costumes by Deborah Nudelim Landis, who I love, and that'll come up a little bit later. It's also, here's one of a fun fact that I love. It's the leggiest movie, according to thenumbers.com. What the hell does that mean? I know, right? I was like, hey, I, I knew it won Academy Awards and stuff. And when I looked, that was the first thing that came up is the leggiest movie. Um, that is measured by the ratio between their total domestic box office and their largest weekend gross, for whatever okay. reason. Wait, the total domestic box office and their largest weekend gross. Right. Totally arbitrary. Call that legs. Uh -huh. Apparently, uh, the higher the ratio, the better the legs. Uh, this has zero to do with the number of legs on camera, which is good because when I saw Leggiest, I thought maybe 300 would win or Titanic or something I, would win. I would have thought Leggiest, meaning it has the longest, like it was in the theaters for the longest time. I agree. And uh, because when this came out, all right, I'm old. We've yeah. established this in this podcast. I'm old and growing more crotchety and cranky every day. But when I was a lad, this came out and we lived in Sheboygan, Michigan, mm -hmm. which had one theater, mm -hmm. no, no cable TV, if even that was a thing at the time, and no satellite dish, no nothing like that. So it was obviously pre-internet. It was just, we used to start cars with their little feet. I like, mean, like Fred Flintstone. that part isn't true. Yes, totally true. And- when this movie came out, we saw it in the theaters 
and it was held over in the theaters for four weeks. Which so, is remarkable. Theaters, excuse me, theater. So <laughs> our one screen theater. And because it was doing so well, they just held a print and showed it another week. So wait a minute. Does that mean that if you and your friends go to the movies on a Friday night mm-hmm. and they hold it, mm-hmm. you're saying that in the town you went to high school, in the town you grew up in, yeah. if you wanted to go to the movies the next Friday night, you went back to see the same movie. Correct. Did you do that? Oh, yes. We oh, saw it. Was it worth it? Uh, there was nothing else to do in town. <laughs> I mean, I would have loved a Cineplex with 20 screens oh, sure. as a sure, teenager sure. and gone crazy, but we had one screen and there was nothing to do. So we're like, I guess we're going to see this again. But in this case, it, it really wasn't bad. And that was a measure of success, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Raiders and Raiders is a success pretty much by any standard. It was a production budget of 20 million, which back then was ex- like $42 billion in adjusted Jeez. dollars. But at 20 million was a huge budget. It has made over $367 million worldwide. It was the number one grossing film for 1981, which is a big deal. Mm -hmm. It won five Oscars. I did not know that. Five Oscars. Uh, Hugo, the People's Choice Award, and the and a BAFTA that year, so it yeah. it swept. It well, it I swept. Mean, I feel like there are more than just five Oscars. I, I well, I do feel like this one will be forever remembered, and the English Patient not so much. So uh, well, okay, depends on who. Yeah, no, I'm going to give you that one. I think, I'm give you that one. <laughs> okay. but I will also say. Um, <clears throat> It was a great night out last night. It's it's a weird thing to have that experience of, I have a different experience of my um, watching Raiders of the Lost Ark in my youth, but mm. I still have that experience. I can remember going with my friends to see it and I can remember the uh, swashbuckling nature of it because I hadn't seen all those Errol Flynn movies. I hadn't seen quite a lot of that. Okay. And so I can remember that and how important it was to me back then. But this is sort of where the the moment where our discussion today deviates from our normal story smack breaking down of a movie, because we also should talk about this cool viewing experience because it did change the experience. This is a podcast about storytelling and how you consume the stories is just as important stories themselves sometimes. Yeah. So like I said earlier, rooftop cinema is on a, a, it's a, it's a nationwide thing. There's New York, LA, oh, San okay. Francisco, and San Diego right now. Mm-hmm. There's also something called rooftop film, but I don't know much about that. But it's a similar idea where they rent a space, set up chairs. We had beach chairs, uh, like chaise lounge beach chairs. Mm-hmm. You get popcorn and snacks and wine. Uh, it was great. Yes, it was uh, certainly better than the time I watched it at Rob Otto's because that was back in the day of VHS. Oh. And when, you know, we'd only seen the movie seven times in the theater. So... <laughs> That wasn't enough. So when it comes out in VHS, we would all get together. And I think there were 14, 14 of us, all ages, say 14, 15, and 16. Boys and girls or just boys? Just, oh my God. Just, you don't have, <laughs> are, you, are, are you crazy? It was, it was a sleepover. What kind of a town do you think I lived in, ma'am? I, mean, I grew up in New York, so things might have been different. <laughs> well, it wasn't a big swinger party for the teens. Uh, but we it, it's funny because we watched, we rented a bunch of movies. It was probably like Raiders of Lost Ark, Strange Brew, probably Star Wars. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to see how many movies we could watch in a night. Because uh, that's what you do when you're a teenage boy, I guess. You know, it's like, how late can we stay up? And uh, we stayed up super late and everybody started to get super slap happy. And finally, you know, I think it's like, like, you know, early in the morning, we're finally like, okay, because our rule was first one goes to sleep, gets screwed with. 
There's going to be... And you're still friends with these people oh, today. Blood, blood brothers. Blood and you, brothers. And, and more. Like, I know people that I went to high school with, and some of them are very good friends of mine, but most of them are people I know on Facebook. You travel once a year to hang out. That's right. At That's least right. once a year to hang out. That's right. Them. They're my bros. They're my bros. And you screwed with them when they Oh, we, we, we were merciless with each other. So Based the rule... your adult self, I will tell... I will ask you this question, <laughs> and then you can tell me the rules. Okay. Did you ever fall... I am assuming you never fell asleep first. Oh God, no. Yeah. No, I, no, I was, I was a very high strung individual Shocker. and I was like, literally like a trapdoor spider. I was just, <laughs> I was waiting. I was waiting and everyone knew I was waiting and they couldn't help themselves eventually. <laughs> and, it was and every time it'd be the same thing, it'd be like, we're watching you Sigler. I'm not falling asleep. And I'm like, okay, okay. And I would just sit and wait patiently okay, and watch. Four jolt colors. For, for, for their benefit though, it was one of the few times in their experience with me where I was actually calm and wasn't jumping off of them and bouncing on them and hitting them and things because I was patiently waiting for someone to fall asleep. And of course, and, and everybody, we all kind of start to run out of steam and everybody's extremely tired. Cause it's not just like you watched seven movies. You've watched movies and wrestled and role played and re run around the house and everything like that. So everybody's completely exhausted and starting to get that, you know, when you haven't slept in 24 hours, that spaciness mm -hmm. and everybody now the negotiations begin. So now the negotiations begin. Okay. What if we all go to sleep at the same time? Say, will you not screw with us? If we all go to sleep, I'm like, sure. I won't screw with anybody. I'll as be long fine. As you all fall, we all fall asleep at exactly the I, same moment. Of course. And I, I'm you were li lying. I'm lying. Yeah. Just straight up lying. <laughs> I'm sure. Cause I enjoyed my bout of terrorism in life and that's what it was. It was uh, it was sleep deprivation terrorism. So finally there's 14 teenage boys in one guy's room. There's sleeping bags everywhere. Cause I don't know about your, your culture, but the sleepover was a big deal for us. Um, and everybody's in the room and we don't realize how late it has gotten. And so we're, and, and of course everybody's poking at each other, make fun of each other and everybody's giggling, having a good time. The uh, attempt to go to sleep is not going very well. And then Rob lived in a huge house was so mom and dad lived on the other side of the house. So at one point we hear this creaking on the stairs and Rob was an oops baby. So his mom was a lot, a lot, a lot older than most of our other parents, like uh -huh. grandma age already. And she's like, and we know we're supposed to be quiet at this point. We're supposed to be asleep. We hear her creeping up the stairs. She goes, Robert. And, and Rob's like, uh, she says, Robert, you guys are making noise. Oh, good night, mom. That's what Rob says. And we're all giggling. And then, then his mom goes, it's six o'clock in the morning. And Rob goes, oh, well, good morning then. <laughs> everybody, everybody completely busts out. And at that point, there was not going to be a sleep for anybody. So I think it was like a 48 hour span, thanks to Indiana Jones, mm. where nobody got any sleep. Well, it is pretty easy to see how this movie would be such, such an easy sell to bring back for this sort of summertime mm -hmm. thing that we did mm -hmm. last night. I actually uh, Googled it. Uh, just Google preparing for this and it's playing in, there's a couple of, um, like, like fancy high end, you can order dinner and drinks and stuff mm -hmm. here in town. They're all over, um, get an assigned seat, all that jazz. And it's playing there too. This, wow. this in the next two weeks. Or it's so. got such, it's got legs. See, it I would call that legs. legs. It's totally up in the blockbuster summer popcorn movie pantheon. And it holds up. I will, we'll talk about it later. I think it, it well, I think it, we, it. we should, let's discuss the movie itself. Yes. Obviously okay. they did so many things, right. And when I was watching this and we'll go through our notes, we don't have timestamps like we usually have, but yeah. we'll go through our notes on the movie. And what struck me is how well this movie 
has endured and persevered and continues to be a stand-up movie. When you look at some of the the silly goof-ups in this movie, mm-hmm. that now that we know a lot more about the business, number one, we didn't catch these goof-ups when we watched it the first time. But number two, now we or look the at it. Time. Or the 15th yeah. time. Now you look at them and go, you can see it on the screen, like they ran out of money. They, they were, they, they could no longer get that set. They would have something that sort of slipped through. And at, at some point, even with a classic, like Raiders of the Lost Ark, mm-hmm. Spielberg and the crew had to be like, that's, that's as good as it's going to get. We just, we cannot do that again. We have to take that and use it. Uh, and they're very small, but it's, it was super interesting to yeah, see that. Well, and there's, there's a handful of things there's, uh, that also, I think help lend it, lend this movie to being very good at aging. And we'll talk about that a little bit too, but <clears throat> The first things first, you brought it up. Uh, so we're outside. They give you uh, headsets and mm-hmm. a blanket when mm-hmm. you check in and you need both because they, they don't, there's no, everybody listens to their headsets. So what's interesting is you're sitting in this, uh, when well, we were sitting on a tennis court, a rooftop tennis court mm-hmm. with a whole bunch of maybe, you know, 30, 40, 50 other people completely having an experience all by yourself because you're wearing headphones. Yeah. That so was. It blocks out all this other sound. It was crazy. And you turned uh, twice to tell me something. And I pulled my headphone off to hear you and you just, you're screaming, that's the one I was telling you about. And I'm like, I'm like, Hey, oh my God, you're screaming. And, uh, it was your, yeah, well. your perception of, volume. but yeah, you're having, you are having your own experience. Yeah. Uh, and it was, it was, it's sweet. If you guys get a chance to do a rooftop cinema thing like this, because it's, it's like seeing it in a the theater and you get a completely different experience. And there's all these people just absolutely celebrating an yeah, iconic exactly. moment in cinema together. It was great. Yeah. Um, so I will say this is the moment. If you have not seen Raiders of the Lost Ark starring <laughs> Harrison Ford. <laughs> Neighbor Chrissy, if you're listening, you can turn it off. <laughs> this is your spoiler alert. And I, I'm not, no judgment. I'm just saying the only thing I'll say is if you haven't seen it, please turn this podcast off right now and watch it before you listen. It's worth it. Uh, but more than that, that is our spoiler. Right. Let's move on. So let's, the first thing I got is the opening scene is, is very iconic. We watched the very rugged silhouette of Harrison Ford with his secondary characters uh, going into the jungle. And we don't see his face until that very, very dramatic moment. Right. So we see everything else we see set up. It's so, it's so cool and so well done. And even though I've seen it 20 times, you're still waiting for that moment when Harrison Ford turns to camera, steps out of the shadow into the light and he's all rugged and intense. And it's such a thrill. There's something about that. There's, there's something about the people who are big movie stars and it's intangible and indefinable. But in that moment, you're like, you are riveted. When he steps into the light, you are with that guy from square one. Yeah, no, and I agree with you. I think that part of that, though, is the the um, the directorial choices, right? We, you made, I had never, believe it or not, never realized that until you said it last night. Oh, really? Okay. Even though it's all over the internet, it's, mm-hmm. but the internet happened after I stopped watching Raiders of the Lost Ark once a season or whatever. Sure. So I never, it never put two and two together. And of course, that's such a big buildup and it's so noir yeah. and it's so sort of so 40s-ish that it loans itself without without seeing the classroom, which we see soon after, once he gets back to campus, once mm-hmm. we meet the Nazis, all that. Obviously, this is a wartime movie in Nazi era <clears throat> or Hitler era. Right. Um, so it translates well to today. <laughs> well, yes and no, because the Fuhrer is definitely a villain, yeah, except yeah. to the people who who work for him. Um, but the bigger thing is it 
all of that, I think, loans itself to, you know, Indiana Jones being the hero we deserve yeah. in that one moment, which I'd never really seen before. It's and and it's uh, I call that negative space work. Mm-hmm. You subconsciously understand that this guy is super important and super respected by the people he's around and is, is in charge because you're watching the reactions of other people. The other people are looking at him. The other characters are looking at him just the way we are. And all the other characters are, are constantly waiting in silence as he confers a map, as he brushes some dirt away, as he looks at all these things. So Spielberg and the team are able to completely establish like this is our alpha character before we even see him, before he, before he even says a word. And it's, it's not a genius tactic by any stretch. I mean, people, you can emulate that in any other movie you want, but in that movie, it's done so pitch perfect. It's great. Yeah. And I think that also lends itself to one of the pieces of magic, I think, about Raiders of the Lost Ark and and its follow-on movie, mm-hmm. but also the, the relationship between Spielberg and Harrison Ford is you... They build this up directorially with acting decisions, with nonverbal uh, actions. And then almost immediately, Indiana Jones reveals himself to be f- completely winging it. <laughs> completely. You know, he's like, eh, he's kind of messing with the sand when he chooses, when they go in, they chooses the icon. So not that he doesn't have skills, but that he is not nearly as in control as we have been shown that he yeah, is. Yeah. And especially you see that without question when he's running, running, running towards the seaplane or the you know, pontoon plane or whatever yeah. it is. Just start the engines! Like he's yeah. losing his mind about it. And I think that's the real um, twist that 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 helps this movie. That's the vulner- that his vulnerability yeah. is he's really good at what he does, but when tr- things get in trouble, he reacts exactly like we react. Now, if you like remake this movie with The Rock, you know, with Dwayne Johnson, who could probably pull off a similar performance. It's hard to imagine the rock sprinting away from the, uh, the tribal gentleman with the yeah. blow darts and having that same look of utter panic on his face. Yeah, Cause that's not something free. Yeah. he doesn't. That's one thing. One of the few things he doesn't do well is how do you believe Dwayne Johnson is terrified when he's friggin' Dwayne Johnson, Harrison Ford, although he's, you know, physically large and a, and a good actor in that regard, when he's running, you're like, Oh dude, that dude's screwed. You can see it on his face. He knows he's screwed. And then there's also vulnerability, that same vulnerability in a different way when he's back in control and he's in the lecture room at his university and the the curator of the museum is there and <clears throat> he's just waiting for it to be over so he can be like, oh, I had the icon in my hand and it got away. Yeah. But there are girls in his in his class who swooning are dreamily over swooning over yeah. him. And he is equally befuddled by <laughs> he that. He does not handle he that. Can't, like he loses his train of thought in the middle of a um in the middle yeah, of a sentence great. and stuff like that. And it's exactly the same vulnerability that he had. Because if he plays that feel. If he plays that scene and he's like in just a little wink or a little smiling nod or like a little shake of the head with a grin, like, hey, you're great, but not for me, it completely changes his character. But you're right, the befuddlement. When this is a guy who can handle, you know, people chasing him with blow darts and fight Nazis and outpunch anybody and right. fly planes and a girl bats her eyes at him and he's just perplexed. Right. He doesn't know what to do. It's awesome. Um, and I do think going back to your point that if it were the rock in that classroom situation, that the rock is excessively good at that, that, uh, nice letdown that thanks darling. Yeah. And to let down yeah. and, and move away from that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right. It would change the character's character for lack of a better way to say that, depending on how the actor does it. And I think he does it really. Let well. me go back to the beginning of the, the mo- uh, movie. So I told you about some of the silly, uh, not silly, some of the 
errors or gaffes mm-hmm. that you can see watching it as a more mature movie watcher in retrospect, right out of the gate, when he has to jump over the pit because he's been betrayed by his guide and you see him kicking the wall, you can see the foam rubber wall he's kicking. You can see all of the stones moving because it's just a foam rubber wall. And, and I never noticed that before. It and was I hysterical. Didn't it last night. I yeah. Didn't it and once you see it, now I can't unsee it, but when I watch that. I'm like, it, it, it's, it, we, there's a few more, but that's one of the things. So he's kicking a foam rubber wall and you know, at some point they're watching edits of that and like, oh, that looks terrible. And somebody else likes to be like, dude, don't worry about it. No one's going to notice that for like at least 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> now it is. So we, we, th- there's so much freedom in storytelling because it's a campy movie, right? right. They, they set out to do, we're, we're doing an homage to all these two-fisted tales uh, and these film noir tales. And by buying into a trope and buying in all the way, it gives them so much freedom storytelling wise. There's contrivances there and they don't care. There's bad character development. Nobody cares because you know what you're getting a fun popcorn movie. And it really, I, I'm very jealous because I have a tough time writing the fun popcorn stuff as a creator. Yeah. And when you watch somebody do it right, you're like, God, I wish I could do that because they just let go of the stuff that doesn't matter and just tell that story. For sure. And I, um, I, you and I have discussed this and I think we discussed it a little bit, even on Story Smack. I'm a big fan of <clears throat> the filmmaking coming of age in America, kind of in the early seventies to the early eighties. And and certainly this is at the end of that tale, but, or an end of that timeline. But we also see in 1977, we see Jaws do exactly the same thing. Be completely honest about its approach to the material and completely dedicated throughout. And Jaws could have absolutely been exactly this movie could have been set in, you know, in, in the same town, all the same stuff, mm-hmm. but with a, hey, this is a giant monster movie. Yeah, because you got super campy. But it didn't. And I don't know how it would have worked out if it did, but it t- it took a whole lot to just not be over the top, not to be a slap, what would become this sort of slasher genre of movie, just the, all the blood and guts and gore. Mm-hmm. It took a whole lot just to stay the course. We're going to tell a big, a st- small story about a big fish. Yeah. And they, and they do that well. And I think that uh, Raiders does that and it opens up um, a pathway to, to just be true to the material in the fashion that you're doing it. And we see it again. You had just brought up The Rock and I think a movie recently that does that really, really well is the new Jumanji. Yeah, it's pretty fun. It is pretty completely fun. a popcorn story. They have to completely buy in to the, to the premise of it. And once everybody does, and I mean everybody, I mean set designers, I mean directors, everybody does, then I am completely in for the ride. I yeah, love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's, if you go back, if you guys ever get time, go back and watch three or four Spielberg movies from the old days. Watch them, watch them in a row, watch them over the course of a weekend. And for all of the things that guy is good at, his ability to focus in on this simple story and forgive any silliness it brings with it to the point where he makes you, you don't care. You don't care if there's, okay, well, that, well how convenient, for example, um, uh, I'll get to the convenience in a second, but uh, early in the movie, we get a I hate snakes tag mm-hmm. right out of the gate. Mm-hmm. And if you watch, you watch this, you realize there's no wasted lines in this. Everything is a setup for something else. I do have a, a an int- interesting moment. I had to use the restroom last night, I had, but I didn't know what to do. So I left my headphones on just because I did. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was in, in the restroom 
um, doing what one does in the restroom mm-hmm. during the snakes. Why does it have during to be snakes? snakes. Asps. Very dangerous. <laughs> you go first. And I was like, well, this is interesting. Uh, and the, some of the campiness is such a streamlined story when he's meeting with the two mysterious government gentle, gentlemen and they're talking about uh, the, the Ark. What do you mean the Ark? As if they've never heard of the Bible before in 1937 <laughs> America. Uh, he says, wait, I've got a picture right here in this giant burly book he just happens to be carrying around with them just happens to have a picture of the ark which just happens to completely foreshadow the final scene in the end of the movie these are the kind of things when you're an overly analytical storyteller like me normally i look at that like oh god dude that's so ham-fisted so ham but i was like of course of course he's carrying a book with that exact picture in it it's fine had you thought that before now because i'm gonna assume the last time you watched the whole movie was like me you know Well over 15, 20 years ago. Probably. Yeah. Probably. Do you have any recollection? Like, have you always thought, no, of course, here's this comic. (laughs) No, 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 no. I, it, I've always been, I've always had a difficult time enjoying other people's storytelling work because I, I, I'm always, that's my job is to look at this and where are the holes in this and how do we fix the holes? And when you see a glaring hole, it'll throw you out. Uh, but I've gotten, I like anybody in their job. I'm much better now at, I can see things in a movie and be like, that's going to show up here, here and here, boom, boom, boom. And it makes it hard to enjoy things, but no, I never noticed that before. Now I notice it because of course, you know, here's the establish the book and show them carrying the book. And, and now it's a setup for the final scene. And you can see how the, the team put all this together. But I, when I didn't have as much knowledge as I have now, I was like, Oh, yeah, when you it's just a picture. Build a story. It's just yeah. a picture, which, which is why I keep hammering on this with this movie one of my serious weak points as a storyteller is I have trouble remembering what it's like to be someone who just watches the movie because movies are fun. Right. And it makes and me overanalyze things absolutely. in my own work and it mm-hmm. makes my own work worse because I crank the ratchets down so hard on it, yeah. not realizing people are, are not as worried about these things as you think they are. People, if you tell a good story, they're going to enjoy it. Right. And we actually have just had this discussion as a tiny aside. Um, and then we'll get back to our experience last night, but we have, are just in the midst of, um, we had primary readers, our beta alpha readers, whatever, read uh, GFL 6. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and now that's, you're That's my work. Galactic Football League series, the sixth book. We haven't yeah. titled it yet, but the sixth book, we're working on that right now. And you're back to work on the second draft. Mm-hmm. But I, the way that we do our business is, is I'm one of the alpha readers and then I collate the other alpha readers' comments to give you one document that has them all together. Uh-huh. And so I get to see... Uh, a little bit of, um, yeah, all three of us saw this thing. All three of us saw this thing. All three of us saw this thing. None of us saw this thing. None of us saw this thing except for John. None of us saw this thing except for Hutch, whatever. And then just yesterday on our way to the movie, you were like, oh, there was this one thing. Every, everybody missed I missed it too. Everybody, everybody missed, missed it. it. Yep. And when, and I'm obviously not spoiling it, but I was like, yeah, I don't think I, I don't think I would ever see that. I just don't think I care because I care more about how the characters are interacting, not, you know, why they ended up in that one coffee shop because I'm too interested in what mm-hmm. we're talking about. And you are like, well, we obviously have to fix that. And I'm like, oh, I mean, you're the writer. Yeah. Okay. I don't <laughs> think we need to fix that. It's which a coffee is, shop. Which is what, what Spielberg in this whole movie is very good at. In the climate ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. 
but when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. On a remote island in Frigid Lake Superior, a fabricated creature birthed from the mind of a disturbed genius stalks the very people who created it. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling author Scott Sigler is a classic tale of science gone horribly wrong. Available wherever you get your podcasts. So we've got the scene, we move into the scene where uh, the government scene, so we know the Nazis are out for a powerful relic. Great. The, the Ark of the Covenant. Awesome. And the scene where Marcus and India are talking at Indy's place when they get the budget to go after the Ark. And that's where the music really starts to come in. It's, it's, compl- it's over the top. It's like right on the edge of cheesy. And it's also completely spot on. The music in this movie, the genius of John Williams, ad- adds so much to it. Mm-hmm. And, in, you know, if you're, if you're a storyteller and you write screenplays, you're like, oh, God, here's this emotional, this upbeat, you know, quirky emotional music here in this particular scene. You can see that, but when you watch as just a viewer, it's perfect. It's great music. Yeah. Well, and I also think that John Williams does, I'm sure he's not the only one, but John Williams, I, I think, is very good at uh, Indy's theme, the Raiders theme, mm-hmm. uh, the, the 14 or so bars of of sound that he can drop in low into the whole orchestra or he can make very prominent like the William Tell Overture loud or whatever. Mm-hmm. So you, when it first comes in in that scene where he's off on adventure and he is going to font to Tannis to get the Ark of the Covenant mm-hmm. is the first time you hear his individual theme song in that bed of music. And, and I have, of course, no way to know when I first saw it, how I reacted. But last night I was all in like, well, this is the beginning of the hero arc, right? And this is, you, you go <laughs> Han Solo. Like, yeah. <laughs> okay. And I, I, and, and based on all of my enjoyment of all of his other huge successful popcorn movies, I was absolutely like, you go Han Solo, you go with your bad self. <laughs> so we get, we get to uh, meet Marion moving into, we're out in the, um, the Alps, where the hell is that? Anyways. Uh, They're in Nepal. Nepal. <clears throat> and uh, we meet Marion having a drinking contest with John C. Riley's dad, which is, <laughs> <laughs> and she wins. And that's, a, that's another thing. There's no, in a streamlined script like this, there's no wasted lines. That, co- that same scene, which you think is just fun to establish her, winds up coming into play later on when she sure. tries to drink the French guy under the table. But that's another one of those moments that as a viewer, you just let go. But mm-hmm. as a writer, I, I actually even thought like, you must be like, okay, I get that they, that she will have tolerance because she's the bar owner. Yeah. But she's 90 pounds. She's half that dude's weight. 300 Less pounds. than half that dude's weight. Yeah. And... That's fine. That works. For, even for me, that works until you look at the 40 shot glasses on the table. And yeah, you're like, geez. that would have put both of them and 15 other people in that bar down. <laughs> but that doesn't matter. And and that only occurred to me because she, when that's over and she sends everybody home and then Indy comes in mm-hmm. and she's like, Indiana Jones walking back into my life. Totally 40s, <laughs> lovely awesomeness. And she's cleaning up and she doesn't eat any of his bullshit and everything else. She makes four trips from the table where she was drinking <laughs> to get the shot back glasses. to the bar to collect all the shot glasses. And I know that that's pacing and everything else. And she's else, stone cold like, sober when she does it too. And she's absolutely sober. 
yeah. And you're like, okay, I don't. I mean, I have had two drinks watching this movie, and I'm tipsy. So. I may not know a lot about having shootouts with Nazis on a Hindenburg, but I do know what <laughs> I do know what ten shots of straight booze is going to do to you. Yeah. Um, so we and that scene we establish the importance of the necklace, and she's actually wearing the necklace, and then. Then we move on and our, our notes get a little spotty here because it's, it wasn't, the movie we couldn't happens. pause it. Yeah. The movie happens. We were sucked into it. One of my favorite parts of the movie though, Sig Heil monkey. Yeah. Well, okay. So before we get to that, because obviously the monkey shows up when they get to Egypt, but before that, um, one of my very favorite moments for Marion is, uh, so Indy comes after the drinking contest. I need this, I need this, or I need this, uh, a headpiece for the, for the, uh, staff. And she says, oh, I'll see if I can find it. She's wearing it around her neck, but then the Nazis come in and they're going to take it from her. And then Indy comes in to save the, save the day, but uh-huh. also set the whole place on fire accidentally. Oops. <laughs> and while there's a big shootout happening, she scurries behind the bar. She's done it a hundred times. She's owned this bar since before her dad died, all mm-hmm. this stuff. And then a bullet breaks a or punches a hole in one of the barrels of whiskey yeah she's like <sighs> and then she leans her face over and drinks another shot <laughs> and then, you know g- guns blazing stands up to get out of there kind yeah of thing. and i yeah. was like that would totally be me <laughs> like i am completely tanked but it's my last chance I'm for a, whiskey so i have one more i'm li- there is literally a gunshot gunfight going on in my bar I'm going to get whiskey. one more. I'm going to get one more shot because I might not get it again. I might yeah, get, just, I might get shot and die. One of those sort of nods to the, to the sort of joyful, playful. Yeah. And part of the, part of the playfulness is even though the fight scenes in this are, are fun. Um, and, but you know, you know, Indy's never in danger for a moment. And this is another thing I, as a storyteller have weakness at is I feel like you got to get that gritty realism in there and make people actually afraid for your main character. But for some classic movies, like, you know Luke's not going to get killed in Star Wars. You know Indiana Jones is not going to get killed. There's no question these people are going to make it through, and yet you're still riveted and you're still held. And I think that's I think there's a lot of storytelling skill to that too. Even if you know damn well that hero's going to make it, still getting people to be on the edge of the seat during those scenes is pretty fun. Pretty skill. Yeah, and you know, we talk a lot about that cuz I um I, I read a lot. You write a lot and read a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have that. That's a problem for you as a reader often. Yeah. And for me, it's actually something I look for. Well, my, pro- my problem is if it's in a series and uh, Dresden, Harry Dresden mm-hmm. gets in trouble in book two and he looks like he's not going to make it. And then I look at the bookshelf and like, there's nine more Dresden novels. He's going to make it. Right. That's personally for me, that's, uh, that's difficult for me, but you actually like that. I, I not only like it, I seek it out. I love the Dresden files. I crazy, crazy love, crazy love Richard Cadry, Sandman Slim uh-huh. and Sandman Slim is eight or nine. I love the Iron Druid series by Kevin Hearn yep. for this reason that I know Atticus is going to tell me this whole story. And it's absolutely true that there are life and death moments and I never, and you're absolutely right that he's definitely living through it. And I knew before I picked up the first book. Mm-hmm. But I never think about that in the moment because it's, it's easy. Life, real life is hard. Real life is, you know, my back hurts this morning because I slept on it funny. Why does that? Ha- I don't need to worry about that. I need to worry about a world where I know Atticus is going to live yeah. through, you know, yeah. things like it's that. It's wonderful escapism. And uh, Joe Ledger's another one. Joe Ledger. So, much. so let's talk about the Sighal monkey. Okay. <sighs> I don't know what to think. I mean, number one giving the fear salute is a, it's a bad thing. The Sig Heil is a bad thing. We know this. Sure. But monkeys are super cool. And yet now you combine 
super cool, smart, screamy monkey with the Sig Heil salute. And I'm, I'm not sure what Peter would think of this. I don't know what to Wait make of this. Let's, let's take a little break here. Super cute, smart, screaming monkey. Yep. How come I'm not super cool? I'm smart and I'm screaming. Because <laughs> you don't make the snarly face. It's true. And as, as, scream a lot as Dane Cook says, you don't make inappropriate facial gestures. It's true. He's got a whole bit on monkeys that's, uh, let's, see if we, let's see if we can link it on here. It's probably in YouTube. Okay. It's friggin' amazing bit. So I'll say this. It's interesting because the monkey serves, it serves this uh, character role yep. that frequently someone in other movies, some character in other movies, and it's often like a child or somebody who can sort of understand the language or the situation, but doesn't. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a woman at the bar who doesn't speak French in Inglorious Bastards or something like that, who inadvertently, just like this monkey, sort of helps the bad guys mm-hmm. along. Yeah. The monkey, I think, gets off the hook because I don't think he speaks English or German. The monkey was a son of a bitch. He, well... That monkey was a son of a bitch. He was a spy. He was planted. He was sent by the one dude with the eye patch on the motorcycle to go... I don't know if he had an eye patch. He was sent by the dude in the motorcycle. He had an eye patch. He had an eye patch. And he was controlling the monkey. And then the monkey, I don't know, he betrays the guy in the motorcycle and then he joins up with Indy after Marion dies. Does the monkey feel guilt for his culpability in Marion blowing up? I want to know more about this fucking monkey. I'm serious. I, I feel like you're missing the part where the eye patch motorcycle guy uh-huh. sends him to infiltrate the good guy ring. So oh, the I see. reason that monkey's a son table, of a bitch. The monkey has kind of a hard time of it. I, you know what? That monkey got what was coming to him. That monkey got what was coming to him. I feel like we're focusing a lot on also, monkey. Also, Nazi monkey. Um, we can move on, but he's a na- this literally a Nazi monkey character in this movie. Moving on into the movie, uh, the next thing I saw is some of the silly, silly moments is uh, the map room where mm-hmm. Andy's doing the stone and the, and the beam. And you can, when the spotlight is moving, the, the sunlight is moving, you can see the, you can see the statue, um, the statue map. The, what do you call that? The rel, uh, what do you call it when you make a little version of something else? The diorama, the stone, you can see it move because it's not really there because it's a muslin set and you just, it's just really little. And all the times I've seen this, I've never noticed that before. I'm like, holy crap. Like that is just, that is a piece of fabric hanging there that isn't actually the whole, the whole set. So when they first, when Indy's first in the map room, um, one of the things that I love about that scene is it. We don't know it yet. I mean, we know it now, but when you first see that movie, you don't know it. But this calls into account all of Indiana's experience looking for ancient artifacts Mm -hmm. like this. And he does a whole bunch of stuff. He pulls out his little notebook, which comes back into play many times in the series. Yeah, many times. And then you realize it was part of his knowledge came from his dad, which you don't realize for a couple more uh, movies and stuff like that. But it's there. the, The roots are there. And I love that. And I don't care if, you know... Spielberg and Lawrence Kasdan thought this was going to be a one-off or if they planned five or six movies, it works because they're able to either have had that plan from the start, which I believe makes a better arc of several movies, mm-hmm. or were able to sort of retcon us without knowing the, without us knowing we were being retconned and saying, okay, well, what if that book he had in the map room was actually his pops? Yeah. I'm, I, I, I know for a fact, like, you know, that happens when they sit down to work these things out and start talking, you go back and watch the old material and you're like, you know, we didn't, there's this thing and it was just a throwaway prop. What if we perpetuate that? So you know that that actually happens. Yeah. Although I will say the map, the end of the map scene is one of the, oh my God, which I didn't see coming until probably last night, but last night when they have pulled the arc up with rope, 
yeah. just the two guys, and then they get the helpers at the top. Mm-hmm. And it's daylight. Like, you could plan this better. You know they don't know where the map room is. You know it. Yeah. You. They don't even know you're there. Why don't you guys stand on the top ridge of a hill in silhouette of the setting sun? Maybe wait till nighttime. And <laughs> yeah. it's a rising sun. This is the first thing in the morning because it's a 9 a.m. Oh, okay. in the map room, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. you could just leave that shit there, cover it up. Keep an eye on it from afar. Don't let anybody get to that dusty hill. Yeah. Come back and get that deal. See, this is, this is you being an uh, analytical storyteller now. True, but I didn't... Re- be, and of course, it's a huge part of the script because the bad guys... The bad guy was great. Legitimately are walking around the camp and look up on the crest of a hill and see people removing the Ark <laughs> It's pretty sake. cool. It's pretty cool. And then, um, and so we get into that, and I don't have the actor's name in front of me, but the dude who played the French archaeologist is effing lights out in this. He's, it's such a good, subtle, real role in, in, this, in this camp movie and he does a great job. He's a big part of the success of this movie. And that gets us to, we get a scene where we get to see, oh, Marion. Well, Marion being the, uh, the brawling bar owner who can do all the shots also cleans up real nice. Hey, your life's in danger. We're all going to die. Here's a pretty dress and some shoes. Why don't you go put this on? Which we hauled to the desert. <laughs> yeah, we did. We brought it out to the desert. Yeah. Of course, those guys can get anything they want. They're, they're, that, they're uh, Nazis. The actor's they, name is Paul Freeman, by Paul the way. Paul Freeman. Paul Freeman was Bella. amazing in it. And then, of course, we have Marion with the drinking scene uh, with Belloc. Uh-huh. And then we, oh yeah, well, so the thing we, the thing we saw in the beginning when she was a drinking, that's actually a thing that shows up over here, Yeah. but it's really well done. Uh, it's so, so fun. And, um, we get out of that. And before I move on to, uh, is there anything you have on those, those oh, scenes? Um, I know. I think I'm good. Let me double check. I feel like those are the, that one moment kind of after that one moment where the bad guys, Balak sees them taking the Ark of the Covenant yeah, away. Yeah. I feel like that's a huge gimme. And then the whole movie just rolls right downhill after. I, I mean, I, I mean, in a good way. It picks up speed. It, I don't mean roll, it rock and rolls is nonstop. Until the end. Nonstop. And you know it. And you're like, well, we got to move fast because this is all coming to a head. So we get to what is now going to be my personal, my, I'm, I'm embracing this as my greeting to everybody, my credo to the people I care about. It's Jonathan Reese Davis. Is that yeah. right? Jonathan Reese Davis, who's in all the movies and is amazing. So good in all the movies. When indie. And Marion show up and he goes, my friends, I am so pleased you are not dead. So now I think that's a great greeting. <laughs> Hi, I'm so pleased you're not dead. Okay. Well, I'm glad you called me out of time. <laughs> I just think it's an amazing way of, of saying, saying that. And then we get the, you know, the classic truck sequence, which is God, a good 10 minute long chase sequence when he's trying to take over the arc and mm-hmm. there's all of the punching and the, and the and fighting and the super kicking. Iconic moment where he, he, uh, shimmies underneath which is an amazing stunt and every time i watch that movie you can't like that i'm sure there are safeguards and i'm sure those people know what they're doing that is a driving truck that is not cgi that is a guy being dragged underneath the truck across a dirt road and moving to various handholds and um, if they digitally edit out safety harnesses i don't know but that's a that's a practical effect and it's it's absolutely stunning right because that guy might be armored up to the gill that's a very friggin' dangerous stunt. Yeah. Really yeah, dangerous. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's no way to get this same uh, sort of gut-wrenching. F- I, well, I'm completely not versed in this, but it feels to me like any other version of that where, you know, it's Superman flying, but really it's Superman laying on a black 
backdrop or, you know, whatever. Um, I, I feel like you'd feel differently. You wouldn't feel like that's so life and death. Yeah. Unless you saw the dust and the wheels and the everything. And in 1981, there was no way to and magically insert dust. It, like if my nephews watch this, right? And they're, my nephew's 17. If Caden watches this, it, I don't know if it would phase him at all because he's used to these lifelike CGI effects and all of this green screen work that good actors have to do now. And back then that there was green screen, of course, and there's a lot of it in that movie. But uh, that scene is just, it, it blows me away every time I yeah. see it. It's a yeah. spectacular, spectacular stuff. And we'll talk about this in a little bit as well. Uh, we should fin- wrap up kind of yeah. thoughts on the movie. Yeah. But I do think that that's one of the reasons it holds up so well. Yeah, because it's, it's real. Not, yeah. It's real. And then we get to, now here's a point I want to make. I, like most people my age, watch The Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. and How dare you? And, and we're just like, what happened to you guys? What happened? How hap- dare you mention that on this podcast? <laughs> How dare you? We talked about that. There's only three indie movies. Well, and then there's this ridiculous campy thing when Spielberg got like the brainworm from the wrath of Khan. It got in there and messed mm-hmm. with them. And so he, but of course that opens up with one of possibly the most ludicrous in the history of movies where he survives a nuclear explosion because he's in a fridge. Yeah. Then I watched this movie again last night, Raiders last night. And there's the scene that everybody seems to forget. He's on a U-boat on top of a U-boat that goes underwater and he survives that somehow and sticks with the U-boat. And we don't see how long it's underwater. Does it go underwater? It does go underwater, doesn't it? I don't know that it goes. I mean, it's, it, I don't know that it dives. It may go under, but I don't know that it dies. I will have to, I may have to go back and, and look that one up after, but if that sub dives and anybody who appreciates 1981 Raiders Lost Ark and hates four because of the fridge scene. Come on. Well, okay. come on. Okay. So there's, there's some cinematics, you know, glossing over we can do. Mm-hmm. And then there's a frigid air saving you from ground zero radiation. <laughs> no, and of course the kinetic energy being thrown a couple miles and landing. All right. This is the last thing I have to say about this movie. Now watching it, in retrospect, when I'm not 16 and is like, Jesus Christ, Nazis, shoot this motherfucker. Just shoot him. You caught him five times in this movie. Five times you caught him. Put a gun against his head. Boom. Dead. Done. It's, it's ludicrous. That's it like, is. now when I go back and watch, like, okay, he got away from us twice. So now we're just going to shoot you. Which Nazis were good at shooting people in the head? So I think that that now I watch it, that makes it a little hard to follow for me. So what's interesting <laughs> is Indy is is an, a, 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 a well-read, a well-educated, swashbuckling. Swashbuckling is a good word. Human. Yep. If we imagined him as a superhero, I don't know, from Krypton or something like that, yep. none of that would phase us. No, it wouldn't phase us. You have superpowers. But... This, I think, is a superhero movie in disguise. It's a superhero movie where everybody's a regular person. There's no superhero. Mm. But he he rolls under the truck, no problem. He saves the girl 85 so. times. He yeah. doesn't get shot in the head. Like, he ends up... We, like in the the scene right before the end uh, in, in the in the the uh, climax with the arc and all that, he he subdues a Nazi soldier to steal his uniform, and the first one doesn't fit. It's great. Totally, touch. it's a great. Those, touch. Are, the, those totally are the light touches it. that make this movie. But then another Nazi soldier quietly walks by, sees his splayed out naked compadre, <laughs> yeah. and Indy kind of struggling into the jacket. 
And Indy subdues him too. Yeah. Dude, if I try on a shirt that's too small for me, I can't even take it off my own head, much less <laughs> subdue another Nazi. Because you're not an action hero. Lady. I'm not. I'm not a superhero. You're exactly. not an action hero. Okay, so like that's uh, and uh, go go watch the movie again, you guys. It stands up, really holds up to the test of time. It's very very fun, uh, and it's just you know it's a Harrison Ford at his prime, one of the all time great leading actors in the history of spectacular summer Hollywood popcorn. He's, he's the best. Yeah. He's the best in that. It's great. Yeah. And I will say, I agree with you. I do think it stands the test of time that I was going to say before. I think that you mentioned, this is a throwback to the big sweeping movies of the 1940s and, and, he, and we're watching it. It was filmed 40 years later. So when we first see it, that's sort of anachronistic. It's certainly an anachronistic now. However, all the effects, even if they're not all practical, which I think they all are, they are looking backwards in time, not forwards in time. So if you watch uh, Star Wars, like mm -hmm. I watched Star Wars with my nephews a decade ago, okay, they couldn't get past the cheesy... Uh, Special effects. Special effects. Yeah. And they just could not buy the uh, whatever guns shoot when they're going through the forest. And it's like a pew, pew. It's truly a pew, pew. And they were like, what is it? Like they couldn't get back. <laughs> because it was 1970 something, 1975, I guess. 77. What comes out in 77. So yeah. whenever they're doing the, the, the special yeah. effects work, they're imagining 150 or more years in the future or I guess we don't know exactly how, right. like, what that would look like. And so you see that in Tron, you see that in mm -hmm. Battlestar Galactica, the first one, you see it a lot where we're trying, you see it in Doctor Who. We're trying to make a reasonable facsimile of what this might look like in the future. And it, it just doesn't hold up, right? Yeah. Back to the future doesn't hold up for to that this, reason. To this day, the only movie that does, the only movie that does lasers right is Congo. It's the only movie. It's the only movie I've ever seen. Interesting. Congo, she's facing, oh, here's a hundred killer gorillas. She gets her laser gun and it's not pew, 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 pew. It's like, turn it on, sweep across all of them and they're all fucking dead. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's the only movie. But that's a dramatic downplay. But, you know, Spielberg had the ability to do the opposite, to look back 40 years and make a reasonable facsimile of something we knew to exist and how. Yeah. So yeah. it, of course, it stands up the test of time 40 years later. Of course. We're even further away from what that was supposed to look yes. like. So that's yes. kind of cool. Yes. Okay. All so right. I know, and you guys who are listening know that we always end with Scott telling us, 10 things. I did not get a list this time. I've been very busy I'm doing it. I'm doing it. What? I am. I'm doing it because you're doing it. I you're have. doing it. 10 things. We don't know well, I'm a handful of things. You son of a bitch. Here's the thing. Are you a sig how monkey? What is going on? I have the most surprising fact of all, and it's personal to me. You oh, Jesus. Lost your mind last night. But first we're going to talk about some surprising facts of Raiders. All right. Park. All right. Tell me this. I know everything about this movie and I will tell you if I knew these things or not. Okay, number one, yes. I think you probably do know, as okay. most people do, the famous, the very famous scene in which Indy shoots the show-off swordsman in the market square mm -hmm. was improvised. Harrison Ford was sick with yep. food poisoning mm -hmm. and couldn't do whatever the stunt was that he was supposed to do. So instead he asks yeah. if he can just say, can I just shoot, shoot, shoot the <laughs> sucker, I think is what he says. So that's true. And that, <laughs> that goes back to the, Harrison Ford can figure out, just pull out a gun and shoot him. Just yeah. shoot him. Just the shoot Nazis him. can't figure yeah. that out. Yeah. Um, Let's see. Which is amazing because uh, that be, that's one of the most famous scenes in cinema history. It's like whoosh, 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 with the sword and just pull out a gun and shoot him. And that's, as you say, completely improvised because he was sick. Also, not to put too fine a point on my love of Harrison Ford being malleable as a lead actor. Mm -hmm. uh, the scene in Star Wars where, where Leia says, I love you. And he says, I know. Also, 
<laughs> Is that I, right? I understand. Yes. He's a pimp. He's yes. a pimp. Yes, yes. Um, let's see. The uh, the monkey. I had one for the monkey, so I thought you would like to. So you are talking about the Sig Heil Nazi saluting asshole monkey. Oh, number two. R2-D2 and C-3PO. R2-D2 and C-3PO make an appearance in the, the Well of Souls scene. They're on one of the cartouches. They're cartouches on one. Are they really? Yeah. And we <laughs> can post that little screen grab. Uh, that's that amazing. That's so good. Uh, Indiana Jones' name comes from Marsha Lucas's dog, Indiana. We named the dog Indy. Who also served as the inspiration behind Chewbacca. Well, that's amazing. That's a good boy. Yeah. <laughs> Who's a good boy? That's a good boy. That's a good boy. This one you will appreciate. <laughs> the Capuchin monkey was somewhat uncooperative. Oh, imagine that. When having to give the Nazi salute. <laughs> he had been trained to do it before filming began, and the crew spent several days on set trying to get that shot. Oh, my gosh. But never worked, finally, never worked with children and animals. And it never worked. They finally had to bribe him. And in that scene where you see him giving that salute, mm -hmm. he's actually grabbing for grapes that are just out of shot. So he's grabbing up for grapes because he That's wouldn't awesome. do it. Yeah. That's and when awesome. you see that, you see that moment where he does that, mm -hmm. there's a screenshot of it. And I'll see if I can put that in the post as well, where it absolutely looks like he's grabbing for grapes, <laughs> which I love. But I have this. I don't have too many more because I know we've run a little bit long. The exploding head at the end of the movie, yeah. which used meat and liver for extra gore, had originally earned the film an R rating. The filmmakers didn't want this to happen. The solution, just add a few layers of fire in front, which is what they did. And that's, that's what dialed it back. Now, was this, this wasn't the first PG-13 movie. No, that came no, later. That was, uh, it was, I think, the next one with the little kid. Okay. Uh, Temple of Doom okay. was the first one. Um, so that actually sparked a discussion uh, leaving the venue last night between you and me. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about that scene? <sighs> this was absolutely amazing. <laughs> so uh, as I've said, I've seen this movie well upwards of 20 times, know, possibly 30. And A has also seen it many, many times. And last night, uh, last night I learned <laughs> that A has never seen the actual end scene I'm of the movie. <laughs> Dude. Why? Because Indy because says... Indiana Jones says, cover your eyes. Don't look. Don't look, Marion. Cover your eyes. He saves her by saying, don't look. So you have listened to the character in the movie and covered your eyes Apparently, all yes. the time. Because you've never seen the melty candle, candle wax melty face, the no. exploding head. And I turned, I actually turned my head towards you and you were like, and of course we're wearing headphones. So I didn't... But you no, you actually tried, you tried to cover my eyes. <laughs> Because he says, cover your eyes. And I'm like, and I'm like, not, I'm like, I'm like pushing your hand. What's like, what are you doing, woman? Don't, this, I'm watching the movie. And afterwards, so you have to recap, has perhaps seen this 19 times in her, in her, in her lives. She has covered her eyes for the final scene because Indiana Jones says, cover your eyes. <laughs> and finally, finally watched the scene and saw all the glory. That was the end of Indiana Jones. <sighs> Okay, so I think that wraps it up. Do you have any final thoughts on Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom? I do not. It's an absolute classic. If you've never seen it, trust me, go watch that movie. You will enjoy it. It's very fun. And how about this weirdo outdoor cinema rooftop thing? It was wonderful. It was uh, rooftop cinema is great. And any, any, you know, that's the one thing going to a movie theater that you can't get at home is that sense of community and that sense of experiencing someone's art with a bunch of other people all together uh, and I love watching movies at home. I hate paying for mo the money to go to the theater. But when you're at the theater, you're at one of these events, 
it's a different experience because it's communal experience. And it was really, really cool. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I, I know this, this, uh, podcast goes, uh, is pretty far reaching, but, uh, take a look. There's something called, uh, the rooftop cinema club. There's something called, I think it's summer movies outside okay. There's something called the rooftop film club, which are different apparently. Um, but I would recommend if, especially if you've already seen the movie and, and, uh, just want to have a fun night out, I would yep. recommend it. Yep. Okay. So we do hope you have enjoyed episode 36 of Story Stack. You can find Scott and myself online. Scott is at Scott Sigler on Twitter and Instagram. And his Facebook page is facebook.com slash Scott Sigler. I'm at a real girl on Twitter and at a.real.girl on Instagram. You can always find us online at facebook.com slash Story And we would love to see your comments over there. You can always find us on iTunes. Just search for Scott Sigler Audiobooks and subscribe. You'll get a free, unabridged audiobook episode every Sunday, and you'll never miss a Story Smack. Mm -hmm. We hope you subscribe there to Scott Sigler Audiobooks so you can hear more Story Smack goodness in the future. And until the next episode, we will talk to you all real Real soon. soon. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is now what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.